Awesome. It's good to have you this morning. We are going to continue or actually finish off a message that we started last week that's called Add to Your Faith. So if you have your Bible this morning, would you meet me in 2 Peter chapter 1? 2 Peter chapter 1. This is toward the end of the New Testament, almost all the way to the end of your Bible. But we're going to finish off a message that we started last week, so this is the second part. And we don't have time to review everything that we talked about last Sunday, but I just would encourage you, you can uh, grab hold of the message from last week. It's free online uh, on our website, thebridgechurch.tv. You can also download the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you want to listen to it that way as well, but it's free. You don't have to pay for it or anything like that, and that's the easiest way to access it. But we will quickly review some of what we talked about last week here in just a moment. But let's look at the text this morning and look at where we picked up last week and where we will go today. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power, everybody say divine power. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Everybody say divine nature. nature. That you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, give all diligence. Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge Self-control. Now, we'll stop right there for just a moment because that's kind of where we left off last Sunday. And just to give you a quick review of what we talked about last week, Peter, who was one of Jesus' most famous disciples and really maybe the most prominent apostle when it comes to the gospel going forth among the Jewish world, Peter had some really interesting things to say about what it meant to walk in the power and the nature of God. Remember, we talked last week about how Peter would have, of anybody that walked with Jesus, Peter would have known what it was like to fail. He made mistakes. He had issues from time to time. Sometimes he lost his way. He knew what it was like to fail, just like all of us. But then Peter goes on and teaches us what it means to walk in God's divine power and in God's divine nature. I want to talk about those two things real quick just to review last week, okay? We talked about how God's divine power gives us everything we need for life. And godliness. That's what it said in verse 3. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. That word life in the original Greek is the word zoe. It means life to the fullest, both in our, in our physical body, in our spiritual body, in our emotional well-being. We can have life to the fullest because of God's divine power. It literally means in vitality and in ethic. When we see ethic, it means the highest standard of right and wrong, the highest standard of good. The highest standard of morality is found only in God. So God's divine power gives us everything we need to live life to the fullest. But then it goes on and says it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. That word godliness is the Greek word eusebia. It means a life that is pleasing, a life that is honoring, a life that is respectful toward God, or a life where God is pleased with us because we live it reverently and respectfully toward him. So God's divine power gives us everything we need to live life to the fullest and to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to our God. Does everybody follow so far? Then, everybody follow so far? All right. But then it goes on and talks about how God has given us access to his divine nature. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that we may be partakers of his divine nature. We focused in on that word partakers last week. It's the Greek word koinonos. It's the same thing that later is koinonia, which means fellowship. We can have fellowship 
with God's divine nature. Fellowship literally means friendship, companionship, and partnership. Every single day of our lives, we have the opportunity to access God's power and God's nature in our lives. As Christians, we all need to know and we all need to understand that God is not simply calling us to get through our life living on great willpower. He's asking us to walk through life with his divine power. That's good news this morning. I don't have to go through life trying to conquer temptation and conquer sin and conquer my fleshly desires simply with willpower. Instead, I can walk in God's divine power. He's made me exceedingly great and precious promises that I can be in fellowship with his divine nature. That's such good news this morning. I want to reiterate just one thing really quickly this morning that we talked about last week, and I think this is really important. A lot of us as Christians, when we start our walk with God, and sadly many of us years on in our walk with God, will continue to try to overcome the enemy, will continue to try to overcome sin, will continue to try to overcome temptation by increasing our willpower. God wants you to grow in your willpower, but more than that, he wants you to walk in his divine power. Every day of our life is an opportunity to have partnership and friendship and companionship with his divine power and divine nature. And I said this last week, my nature is not all that divine, so I need a whole lot more of God's nature and a whole lot less of mine. I messed it up second service and it didn't rhyme. It was a lot cooler when it rhymes. My nature isn't all that divine, so I need a whole lot more of God's nature and a whole lot less of mine. Can anybody else say amen to that? That's truth for us today. So we talked about having access to God's power and to God's nature. But then Peter goes on after that and he says, but be diligent that you add to your faith. Now what is faith? We know that faith is not just what we believe here. Faith is what we act upon because of how strongly we're convinced here in the promises of God. See, our belief system is just a simple ingredient of our faith. Faith is, not, faith is not just belief alone. Belief becomes faith when we start to act upon the things that we believe. So faith is not just belief system. It's always a walk. It's always action. So when we see faith here, we're talking about a walk with God. But Peter goes on and he says, be diligent to add some of these characteristics, some of these fruits, some of these qualities to your faith. Now, last week we talked about how the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he actually lists the fruits of the Spirit. If you are walking in relationship with God, if the Spirit of God is alive right here, these are the fruits that your life will produce. If you read this, these passages right here, Peter, in a similar way, is almost talking about his take on the fruits of the Spirit. If you're walking in relationship with God, your life will become fruitful. But this whole idea of fellowship and friendship and companionship, remember what we said, relationships are always made up of equal effort. How many know that a healthy relationship is made out of equal effort? How many know that a bad relationship is one where one person is putting in all the work and the other person is doing nothing? A healthy relationship with God, God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us access to his divine power. He gives us access to his divine nature. But we have to do the work. We have to be diligent to add to our faith so that our life is fruitful. So Peter goes on and he talks about a few things that we need to grow in and things that we need to add to our faith. I want to read these to you one more time. He says, to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. Now, because of time, we can't go back into those three things and break those things down today. But there are things that God wants us to do our work and put in our work and our effort and our energy into so that our life becomes fruitful. The three things we talked about last week is add virtue 
to your life. Add knowledge to your life and add self-control to your life. Now, I want to go on and I want to look at the other four things because there's seven things that Peter says here we need to be adding to our walk with God, adding to our faith. So let's continue on reading in verse 6. The last thing we talked about last week was self-control. But Peter goes on and gives us four more things. He says in verse 6, the second part, add to self-control perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Now watch verses 8 and 9 right here. We're going to talk about these at the very end of the message today. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. In other words, God wants to produce fruit in our life during our walk with him. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So let's talk about that first thing today where we left off. Number four, if you're taking notes from last week, is this word perseverance. Peter says to add to your faith perseverance. Now, if you look at the King James and you look at other translations, this word in the Greek here oftentimes gets translated into the word patience. But when you look at Paul's version of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he uses a totally different Greek word for patience. The word here that gets translated into perseverance, it literally means cheerful, hopeful endurance. Cheerful and hopeful endurance. Now, why do we need to talk about endurance and perseverance when it comes to our walk with God? If you've ever heard me speak here in church before, you might have heard me say this, okay? God makes us exceedingly great and precious promises. And then there's a day coming where he will provide those things in our life. We will take possession of his promises. But has anybody noticed that between God's promises and my possession of those promises, I usually encounter a problem? Has anybody noticed this? I was preaching, uh, let's see, three weeks ago in northwest Arkansas. And I was preaching down there and I told everybody, I said, has anybody here, like, had a Christianity that was completely free of problems? And nobody raised their hand. Why? Because life is going to be full of challenges. When we start walking with God, especially, we might encounter some problems. Why? Because there's an enemy in this world. His name is the devil, Satan, and he wants to see to it that you do not walk into the promises that God has made you. If you can step in and possess the promises that God has made you, your life will be a testimony of his goodness and his faithfulness. And above all else, the enemy wants to make sure that you do not possess the promises of God. So between the promise and the possession of that promise, we will usually encounter a problem. Wouldn't it be easier to follow Jesus if we never had to deal with any problems? Like, wouldn't we all just immediately sign up for problem-free Christianity? I think, sadly, a lot of us are kind of sold that bill of goods sometimes to think, give your life to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Guess what? Give your life to Jesus and there's a devil who's mad about it. Because you're pursuing the promises of God and you want to possess the promises of God. So somewhere between point A and point B, you are likely to encounter a problem. And what is it that we're supposed to do when we encounter problems? You know, the Apostle Paul talked about, well, count it all joy when you encounter these challenges. What's funny about that is that when we actually look at this and this idea of perseverance here in, in this passage of Scripture in 2 Peter 1, really what he's talking about is even in the middle of my problems, I can have a cheerful and hopeful expectation that there's a time coming where I will receive everything that God has promised me. And I, I just want to talk to you this morning about how do we do that? How do we walk through life? How do we walk through challenges and through problems with an attitude of perseverance? I think there's a lot of ways that we could go, but for the sake of time, I just want to give you one thing to think about this morning. 
When it comes to living a life and having perseverance in the midst of our problems, I think sometimes we tend to get overwhelmed with the problems that are surrounding us to the point that we stop confessing praise back to God for the good things he's done for us. And to borrow a line from a preacher who's used this a lot of times, the devil tends to throw problems at us, and we stop, and we don't remember to throw problems back at the devil and say, devil, you might be giving me problems, but I got a problem for you. I got this thing called praise. Because right in the midst of this season of waiting, right in the midst of this season of trial, right in the midst of this season of tribulation, I choose to let praise be the bridge that gets me from where I am to the place that I need to go. Let me illustrate this for you further. I'll never forget a few months after I got married. So Ashley and I have been married for almost seven and a half years or so. And it sounds funny when you say or so, it's like you forgot, you know. <laughs> You're worried if your wife is thinking, did he forget how long we've been married? We've been married for about seven and a half years. I remember right after we got married, man, we were so pursuing the call of God on our life. And right after we got married, it was like, you know, there were some doors that began to open for us in ministry in our local church that we were planted in. And I'll never forget when opportunity started to come for both of us. I, I remember like getting my first opportunity to speak in our church and just feeling like this is the open door I've been praying for. And I was so excited about it. And along with that comes this affirmation that God's telling you, you're on the right path. You're stepping into your calling. And I remember just feeling so excited when I first started getting my first opportunities in ministry. You know, feeling like, man, I, I'm growing into a man of God. I'm not saying that to compliment myself. I'm saying it was like God was affirming the things that were in my heart. And I'll never forget, we got to summertime. This is just a few months after we got married, and Ashley worked for a school district. And school's out in the summertime, y'all. And that means there ain't no paychecks coming in in the summertime. And I'll never forget coming home one day, and we paid our rent, and we paid some bills. And I looked in our account after we had paid our rent and paid our bills, and I think we had like less than 100 bucks in our account at that time. And these are those early stages of marriage where you're learning some things. You're learning how to budget your money and handle your money. You're learning how to trust God for what you have and for the things that you don't yet have. And I'll never forget feeling so down in the dumps, just like, oh my gosh, life is about to come to an end. I'm not so sure we have enough money to get through these next few days and weeks. I don't know how we're going to do it. And I don't know what it is. Maybe there's some guys in the room that are like this too. But when it comes to finance and when it comes to provision, guys, if we ain't got it, man, we can feel really deflated and really defeated. Anybody ever been in a season like that? I'll never forget, I walked out of our apartment that day, and there was this park that was around the corner from our apartment. And I used to go there and pray and just kind of walk and, like, study and think through my, my messages and stuff. And, you know, usually I'm walking through that park, like, talking through the message that I want to preach in church. This day I'm walking through the park, and I'm just complaining to God about everything I don't have. Hey, God, where are you at on this one, huh? I just paid my rent and paid my bills, and we have less than 100 bucks to get us through the next two weeks. This is a really difficult and tough season. What are we going to do, God? How are we going to get through this? How are we going to make it? And I remember sitting there and just like, it was like, God, we've put you first, and we've trusted you with our tithe, and we bring offerings, and we make sure that we put you first in all areas, and we're doing our best to. But here we are, and it seems like we just don't have enough. And I'm going on and on and on and on and on, just telling God about everything that I don't have. And it was like finally when I just shut up for a moment, it was almost like so clearly I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit just whisper to me, you know what, you're spending a lot of time telling me about the things that you don't have and spending zero time praising me for everything that you do. Because here's the thing, your rent is paid for the rest of the month. Your bills are paid for now. And while you might not have everything that you do need, why don't you just test me to see if I'm not going to open up the windows of heaven and provide for you? Because that's the promise that I made to you. The funny thing about that is I can't look back at it and say that somewhere magically out of the blue someone came through and just took care of us or something like that. What I remember is day after day just seemingly somehow we had everything that we needed. 
I don't know how God did it. All I know is that I look back and know that we were okay and we still are okay. Right now, in the middle of your storm and in the middle of your season of problems, maybe you need to give the devil a problem of his own and say, devil, you want to throw problems at me? I'm throwing a problem back at you. I got praise. Praise of my Lord and my God will be on my mouth. It shall continually come forward from my house in every area of my life. The devil wants to give you problems? Give him a problem back. Say, I got praise. Let praise be the thing that bridges the gap from where you are to the place that you want to go. Everybody with me so far this morning? All right, now, Peter goes on and he says, add perseverance, but the next thing he says is add godliness. Add godliness. Now, here's what's interesting about this word godliness. We already saw it in this text. It says that God's divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness. That Greek word, eusebia, it means a life that is pleasing, respectful, and reverent toward God. We need to add this. What's so funny about that is, doesn't it seem like godliness is something that God adds to our life? But here, Peter's saying it's something that we get to add to our life. Why? Because we're talking about a partnership, fellowship, a relationship with God. As we're walking with God, it's a partnership where he's developing things, but we're being diligent to see these things added to our life. So what does that word godliness mean in a practical sense? Does everybody remember like a few years ago, and it's more than a few years ago, I guess it was probably toward the beginning of the 2000s. You remember everybody was walking around with those bracelets that said WWJD? Those kind of just became corny over time because even people that you knew like weren't really living for Jesus had one around their wrist to make them feel better about themselves. That's not funny. <laughs> it's kind of like this. You could be driving down the street and like you could like accidentally cut somebody off or something or not use your blinker and the guy pulls up next to you and gives you the universal sign of disapproval and like right when you see his middle finger, you look and see he's got a WWJD bracelet on also. Like everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Now, I know I'm being a bit sarcastic here, but what's funny is I think that as Christians, we should take every step that we possibly can to continually remind ourselves every step of the way in our lives that we need to be people who make godly decisions. In every area of our life, we have to make decisions, we have to speak words, and we have to take actions that will be a reflection of who we believe our God to be. In every area of our life. And I wish I could explain this in a lot of practical ways that would really hit home with you today, but... I think one of the things that I've found in my life is that there are some tough seasons where I have to make hard decisions that might be difficult for me, but they are honoring of God. Sometimes a God-honoring decision might mean that I'm taking a back seat and I'm lifting somebody else up. Sometimes a God-honoring decision means that I don't take the credit, I give it to somebody else and I give it to God. Sometimes a God-honoring decision requires sacrifice. Sometimes God-honoring decisions that develop godliness and that character in us are really hard decisions make. If you think about it, if you make the decision to be in Christ, you've experienced salvation, you have the Holy Spirit alive on the inside of you, those are big stones. Those are big decisions that are set on the inside. But after that, along the way, life will be comprised of all kinds of smaller decisions that will have a reflection of whether or not we are living out a godly lifestyle. And every single day of our life, we will face little decisions that will develop godliness in our character. I want to give you an example of this if I can. Because I think that this is an incredibly practical example, okay? Um, I remember nine years ago, I got out of Bible college, and I had just come home, and I was living in Newport Beach. Came home from Australia from Bible college, and my dad called me, and you know, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Gary, our senior pastor, is my dad. And he calls me, and he says, hey, what would you think about coming and speaking at our young adults gathering here at our church? Now, you got to realize, I had hardly spoken anywhere. 
And so I was like, sure, sounds good. I want to do that one day, so this will be good practice, good training to do that. And I remember coming that night, and to be honest with you, it probably wasn't even that good, okay? But I'll never forget, he calls me and he says, hey, will you come and speak at our young adult thing? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I came, it was here at this church, in our church building here. It was in the foyer outside. And when I got here, this is 2009, okay, the summer of 2009. I got here that night, and I'm like, just got my mind like fully, you know, into the message and what I'm going to say. And I remember walking in this building, getting into the foyer out there, and it was like 100 degrees in the foyer. It was blazing hot that night. And I just remember thinking, like, what is the, what is the deal here? What is going on? Do they not, like, want to use the air conditioning? Does it not work? Does nobody know how to turn it on? Like, what's happening here? And I remember going throughout the entire evening and during praise and worship, we, we had acoustic praise and worship, and the person that was singing and leading us in worship is just, like, dripping sweat. And everybody that's standing there with their hands raised high has, like, you know, sweat stains because that's kind of gross because it was hot. And I remember getting up there, and I'm already, like, carrying the pressure of I haven't done this very often. And I sit down to speak, and you're just sitting up there just, like, sweating bullets because it was so hot. And I remember we got to the end of the night, and everything went fine. And I remember the very next day, my dad called me. He said, hey, buddy, how did it go last night? And I was like, well, I think it went well. Everybody was very receptive, very encouraging. People seemed to be pretty responsive. I was like, but i got to be honest with you, Dad. It was like 100 degrees in the building last night. What was going on? And he's like, yeah, sorry about that. We got a new policy. I was like, we got a new policy. Now, here's the backstory to this. In 2008, 2009, as everybody knows, our economy absolutely fell apart in relationship with the housing market. So therefore, many people lost jobs, many people lost incomes, many people lost housing. And that absolutely took an enormous toll on our church at that time in the same way that it took a toll on many of your lives, if not most of your lives. And we were three years in from a building project. And as you know, it costs a lot of money to build a building this big. But we built it at the height of the economy only to see that economy absolutely fall apart two or three years later. And there was a season in our church about 10 years ago where we were in a very, very, very difficult situation if God did not intervene. And I'll never forget talking to my dad and he says, we have a new policy here in the church. And I said, well, what's that policy? He says, we only run the air conditioning on Sunday morning, and that's it. <laughs> I was like, well, what about the people who work? He goes, well, we have it on in the office during the work week so that people are comfortable, but we ain't running it at no 68 degrees, I can tell you that. <laughs> and he says, the policy is that the air conditioning does not get turned on in any, build any room in this building unless it is Sunday morning, auditorium, and kids area, or areas that we are using on Sunday morning. So during the week, it does not come on. We make sure that every light that can possibly be off in the building is always off. And he told me that that night, and I was just like, okay, you know, whatever. Well, fast forward a few years down the road when I came on staff here at this church, and I've told you guys this story before, but I'll never forget going to lunch with my dad one day. And my dad is like the light switch Nazi, okay? Like, he looks, he like scours the place looking for lights that are on just so he can turn them off, like always. He's been like that since I was a kid, and I'm just like, what is the deal, Dad? Like, you were obsessed with turning off lights. And he's like, yeah, well, if you'd been sitting in my chair a few years ago when things got tough, you'd be looking for lights to turn off, and you'd be setting policies in place for the air conditioning not to run. And I remember he told me this story about how all we did was made a few simple changes that were not convenient. They were uncomfortable changes and policies that we put in place to make sure lights weren't left on, to make sure that air conditioning wasn't left running, and that we didn't use it at all if we didn't absolutely have to. He said, and you would have been shocked to see the difference when our electric bill came and we were saving hundreds, if not over a thousand dollars a month in electric bills. And I'll never forget having that conversation with him that day, and he was like, you know, you think I'm the light Nazi. He's like, but here's the thing I've learned over time. He says, if you are faithful in the little things, God will reward you and entrust you with much, much more.
Now, I know that to a lot of you, you're saying that's an example of a light switch and running the air conditioning. That seems very, very simple. Can I tell you something? That a godly lifestyle will often be made up of really, really small decisions. But if you will make a godly decision in the smallest of choices and in the smallest of decisions, what you'll see is you'll get years down the road and the fruit of what God did during that season will come about and the world around will look at it and see you're walking with God. You're living a godly lifestyle. Can I tell you something? We're in a whole lot better a place than we were 10 years ago in this church. And one of the biggest reasons why is because there were people that were willing to make sacrifices to see us get through that season, make godly decisions, and we got through it, and we're doing a whole lot better today because God is faithful. Amen? But we have to make the decisions to be diligent, even if it's a tough choice, to make godly decisions along the way. Now, let's keep going. We talked about number four, perseverance. We talked about number five, godliness. Look at number six. This one we'll probably walk through a little bit quicker. Number six, Peter says, add to your faith brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. Does anybody want to take a guess at what this word is in the Greek? It's Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. As everybody who's been to Philadelphia knows, man. Just kidding. <laughs> I've never been to Philadelphia. I just watch the Eagles play and see their fans, and I'm like, yeah, that's the city of brotherly love. Okay. <laughs> that plane's like coming in from Philadelphia. But Peter says, add to your faith Philadelphia. Add brotherly kindness or originally brotherly love, okay? Brotherly love. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been pretty blessed to have a family that I love. I enjoy being around my parents. I enjoy being around my siblings. I'm really grateful for my family. I'm grateful for the family life that I get to have. But just as soon as I say that, I know that this room, in a room this size with this many people, there's gonna be people here that you're gonna say, that's good for you, but I really wish I had a better relationship with my family. I know there's some of you here that life hasn't been great when it comes to family life, whether it was parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, aunts and uncles, extended family around, it doesn't matter who it is, you might look at family and say, yeah, you might have had a good family experience, but I surely didn't. And I think sometimes we can have a portrayal of God and his people based upon what our family experience has been and even in our own life. But you know, I'm grateful for my family experience and I have a brother that I love very much. It's easy for me to care about my brother and my sisters because of the fact that they're my brother and my sisters. They're my siblings. I love them. We have similar things in common. We have similar backgrounds. We care about our upbringing, the things that we've shared together, so that if something happens to them, I care about it very deeply because they mean a lot to me. But have you noticed that it's like not so easy to love other people the same way that you love your own family? I talked about this a few weeks ago. Like, I got all the grace in the world for my kids, but your kids, <laughs> It's easy to love the people that you love. It's easy to love the people that you're close with. But people that you don't know very well, people that aren't a part of your family, people that maybe you meet for the first time or that you've never met before, when they tend to bring some sort of issue into your life, it's hard to extend that same kind of brotherly kindness. Now, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you real quick to illustrate the kind of love that God is wanting us to have for other people. Okay, look at this. This is what it says in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of, uh, of bondage again to fear, but instead you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, which is personal, Dad, Father, God. Verse 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit that we, we, you and me, are children of God. And then finally, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The thing I really want to point out here is from verse 15. If we are in Christ, it's because we have received, by grace, the spirit of adoption. 
Did anybody here do anything to deserve your salvation or to earn your salvation? Anybody? No, because it's been extended to us by God's grace. We've received the spirit of adoption. God, by his mercy and grace and compassion, accepted me into his family. He adopted me as his own. So if I haven't done anything to earn my salvation, that means that I am no more worthy of my salvation and my relationship with God than the person who offends me walking down the street. Than the people who might upset me by the words of their mouth. The people that might not be my brothers and sisters. The people who it might not be so easy to love because I'm not close with them. What this is saying is that even though we might not be a brother-sister physical relationship with other people, we have to see them the same way because we are no more worthy of God's love than they are. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate this further, okay? I have a brother. He lives up in Seattle. Many of you would know my brother. His name is Zane. He used to be on our worship team here in the church before they moved up to Seattle. My brother and I are like, we are polar opposites personality-wise, like as far as the east is from the west and getting further, okay? Like, we're so different from one another. When we were growing up, man, we fought every single day. It wasn't because we didn't love each other, but we just fought like every single day. Our two best friends were also brothers. They would come over to our house on a weekend. We'd be playing like kickball or baseball or tetherball in the backyard, and me and Zane would get in a fight, and the two of them would just watch us like, well, there they go again, (laughs) because that's how it's always been. And forever and ever, my brother and I would fight. Like, we would leave the house in the morning mad at each other because of some fight that we got in just because we were so different. But I'll never forget this one day, we had parent-teacher conferences at church, and my parents were with my teacher, my fourth or fifth grade teacher, having a teacher conference, and a bunch of kids who were also there because their parents were having conferences were outside playing on the playground. And there was this one kid that got into it with my brother, and he threw a ball and he hit my brother in the face, and then he walked over and he pushed my brother down. And let me just tell you that even though my brother might have been fighting it out for two or three days before that, as soon as I saw it, I will never forget this as long as I live. I ran after this dude, and I remember I kicked his legs out from under him, and when he went down, I took his face and I started rubbing it in the ground. And he got up and he had a bloody nose and he was crying and he ran away into the room where his parents were meeting with a teacher. Now, I don't tell you that this morning to tell you how tough I am because I'm not that guy. The funny part about it is that if me and my brother were to get into a fight today, I have no problem admitting to you right now, he would totally win. My brother is a big, strong guy. And trust me when I tell you, you don't want to get in a fight with him. But here's the thing. My brother to this day knows that I'm not the fighting type, but every time we look back and talk about that story, it's the one story that we had between us growing up where my brother was like, yeah, but I remember, even though we fought all the time, when it came down to it, you were totally there. Like, he'll still tell the story. Oh, yeah, I remember the time Zach got really mad and he rubbed that kid's face in the ground and he got a bloody nose. It was really funny. Because there's things that you do when it's your brother or your sister. There's some kind of righteous indignation that rises up on the inside of you that says, you mean something to me. And what we're being encouraged to do here when it comes to brotherly love and brotherly kindness is to look at other people and care for them and love for them and have compassion for them the same way that we would our own brother and our own sister. Even if they don't deserve it. Did you deserve your salvation? Did you deserve adoption into God's family? No, I didn't deserve it, you didn't deserve it, so therefore we have to look at other people with that same kind of grace and that same kind of compassion. I love how when we look at scripture, scripture lays these things out for us and says, add this to your faith, and we say, okay, I'm gonna add that to my faith, but then we go and try to practice it, and it's like, it's really hard to love somebody the way I would love my own brother, because you're not my own brother. But everybody walking in this world has the potential to be accepted by grace into the family of God as well, just like I have. 
And so Peter says, put this on, add this to your faith, add brotherly kindness, brotherly love. See others the same way you do your own brother, your own sister. See them that way. It might be hard, but if you're walking with the Holy Spirit living here, one of the things that begins to happen, why? We're walking in God's power and God's nature. Suddenly there's this divine compassion, there's this divine love that strikes up on the inside of us when we see somebody else that's going through a hard time. Say, you know what? I didn't earn my salvation. I didn't earn everything God's given me. So if God's given me the spirit of adoption, who's to say he's not given it to them too? And I choose to love them. I choose to serve them. And I choose to have a brotherly and sisterly love for them because that's the way that God loves us. Amen? Amen. All right, last thing, and then we'll wrap up in just a moment and tie all this together. The very last thing that Peter says we are to add to our faith. He says, add to your faith love. Now, love is the simplest of words, but... This in the original Greek is maybe the most important word in all of the New Testament. Everybody know what this one is? It's agape. It's agape. The best way to describe agape love is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. It's self-sacrificing love. It's love that costs us something. Love that costs us something. If you look in the King James, this word is actually not uh, translated into love. It's translated into the word charity. It costs us something. It means that we have to give of ourselves in order for that love to be expressed. And listen to this, because this is so outlined so well in Scripture. In fact, it's given as examples where we see it's demonstrated for us by Jesus. I'll show you three places, okay? Look at John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says these words. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love, that you agape one another, as I have agape loved you, that you also love or agape one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have agape love for one another. Do you think that this commandment was important to Jesus? I think it was because he said the word agape love four times in two verses. He's really trying to get the point across. Here's what's interesting is every time Jesus says, here's a commandment, I command you to do this. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus would not, wouldn't have the authority to give a command if he wasn't God? If Jesus wasn't God, he could only say, well, let me just make a suggestion. But instead, Jesus says, a commandment, a new commandment I give to you. I love that. I don't suggest to you that you love one another, that you have agape, sacrificial love. Instead, I command you. But he doesn't just tell you to go and do it. Instead, he shows you that he's going to be the one to do it. It says in the middle of verse 34, as I have loved you. He's talking about going to the cross and laying down his life for the sins of the world. It wasn't just a suggestion. It was a commandment. Now look at this, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love. What word do you think it is right there for love? Agape. God demonstrates his own sacrificial love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now look at this, Ephesians chapter 5. And walk in love, agape love. This is Paul talking to husbands and wives actually in this passage of scripture. And walk in agape love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Look at verse 25. Husbands, agape, love your wives. Self-sacrifice, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. If you look at John 3.16, it says that God so loved agape, sacrificial love, that he what? Gave. Because agape love, the kind of love that we're supposed to have one for another, is supposed to be a sacrificial, self-sacrificing love that costs us something. It will always cost us something. All through the scripture, we see that love is demonstrated best, not just by our words, but by our actions. And more specifically, 
by the sacrifice that we make. If you're a single person here today, let me just give you some advice. I, I, I've had people say, like, and I think it's just because I'm a pastor, you know, like when you're married, people are like, can you give us like some marriage advice or something? I'm like, nope, I've only been doing it for seven years and we're still trying to figure it out. But when it comes to dating and single life, can I just say something to all the single people here? When it comes to the kind of love that you want to have with another person, it might be all roses and wonderful and, and amazing right up front. You might just feel like you're falling in love with somebody. But if you get a few weeks and a few months down the road and you find that you're the one that's making all the sacrifice and you're the one that's putting in all the work and you're the one that's doing all the give, 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 let me give you some advice. Run. <laughs> Run. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul was talking about the kind of love that husbands and wives are supposed to have for one another. A self-sacrificing love that he equated to Jesus laying his life down. Now, we're not just talking about marriage or marital or romantic relationships. We're talking about the kind of love that we're all supposed to have for one another. And I want to ask you a question today. How much of your Christianity is based upon what you get compared to how much you give to other people and to God? Because one of the healthiest signs of where we're at in our walk with God can sometimes be measured and determined by how much of our relationship with God is based upon what I get out of it rather than what I'm giving to God and giving to others. You want to measure the health, engage the health, ask yourself that question. God, is my relationship with you all about gimme, 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 gimme? Get, 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 get. Or is it all about God, you've been so good to me. You've given me so much that sacrificially of myself, even if it costs me what I have, I choose to give back to you and to give to others. That's agape love. That's the kind of love that Jesus is telling us we're supposed to have. And he didn't just tell us to have it. We saw all throughout scripture, he demonstrated it for us. He gave of himself. There are too many of us as Christians that like to say good things to other people and pretend that that's love. No, God says real love for other people is self-sacrifice. It's love that costs us something. It costs us something. You know, as we talked about these seven things these last two weeks, and I only talked about four of them today, but I'm reminded about how Peter really is, he's really approaching these as if these are a part of the fruits of the Spirit of God being at work in our life. God wants us to be fruitful. I think a lot of us in our Christian walk, one of the, one of the traps that we fall into is that we think that God is simply going to be pleased with faithful, and we forget that God is calling us to be not just faithful, he's calling us to be fruitful. See, faithfulness is not the end. Faithfulness is simply the means. Fruitfulness is the end. God wants us to use our faithfulness to produce fruitfulness in our lives. Now watch this one more time. This is what I want to say to you in closing this morning. This is what it says at the very end of this passage. Second Peter, excuse me, uh, <laughs> Second Peter 1, 8 and 9. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. Man, those are two really heavy words. Barren and unfruitful. I don't want to stand before God one day and have God look at me and say, you lived a really barren and unfruitful spiritual life. I think a lot of us, when we approach our Christianity with the goal to be faithful, we say, well, God, I faithfully go to church, and God, I faithfully pray to you, and God, I faithfully read my Bible, and I think God's like, that's awesome, but is your faithfulness producing fruitfulness? And you might say, well, what's the difference this morning? Last thought this morning in closing is simply this. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told the parable of the talents, and he said there was a master who had property, and he had, he had much worth. 
And he was leaving to go out of town, and he left behind some of his property, some of these talents, as they were called, to three of his servants. The first one, he gave five talents. To the second servant, he gave two talents. To the final servant, he gave one talent. And he went out of town and said, now take these things and take care of them while I'm gone. So the first servant took his five talents, and he began to trade and invest those talents. And the second servant took the two talents, and he began to trade and invest those two talents. And then the final servant took the one and faithfully dug a hole and faithfully put that talent in the ground and faithfully buried it back with dirt and his shovel. And when the master came back, he asked these servants, what is it that you have to show for the talents that I gave you? The first servant came back and said, you gave me five. Faithfully, I went and I made them fruitful. I brought you back five more. You gave me five. Look, here's ten. And then the second servant came with his two talents. He said, well, you gave me two, but I went and faithfully I worked until it became fruitful. Now, you don't just have two. Now you have four. And the master gave blessing to the first servant and the second servant. But then when it came to the third servant, he said, what about you? What did you do with the one talent I gave you? And fearfully, the third servant looked and said, well, I know, master, that you're a hard master, and you reap where you have not sown. And I was just so worried that if I were to lose this, I was so worried that if I were to even attempt to gain on this, or if I were to attempt to trade, or if I were to attempt to invest, that we might lose something here. So I faithfully went and dug a hole, and I buried the talent. And you know what? We didn't lose anything. Instead, you got your one talent back. And the master looked at him and he said, you wicked and lazy servant. Then he took it a step further. He said, be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's heavy. Why am I saying all that this morning? Because God wants my faithfulness to be a means to his fruitfulness in my life. God is not calling us merely to be faithful. He wants faithfulness to produce fruitfulness. If my life and your life are fruitful, then the world around us will see that there's something different about the light that we are walking in. The world around us will look at us and say, there's something about God that's at work on the inside of you. There's something about God that seems to surround you and working on your behalf because you're producing things that I can't produce in and of my own strength. If you're here this morning, I hope that you're growing in your willpower, but can I just encourage you? I hope that you're growing in divine power, that God is walking with you and you are accessing everything he has for you in your daily life. Because God doesn't want you to just be faithful. He wants you to be fruitful. And we will stand before God for the fruitfulness of our lives. Not just our faithfulness, but how much fruit our faithfulness produce. I don't know about you, but I want to live a fruitful life. Anybody else this morning? Come on, can we give God praise this morning? I want to ask everybody to stand to your feet real quick if you would. We only have a few more moments left in service. I just want to pray for you this morning. You know, we don't do this very often to take ministry time in church, but I just believe in my heart that God is calling the church, his church, to be not just a faithful church. He's calling us to be a fruitful church. If you're here this morning and you want to see God just bring fruit into your life, if you want your life to be godly so that the world around will know that there's something different about you because of the God you serve, would you just lift your hands to heaven this morning? God, I thank you that you want to produce fruit in our life. You want to make us more into the image of Jesus. And God, we recognize that we can't do it in and of our own strength, but that's why we have your divine strength at our fingertips. And we dive in today, God. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would empower us, you would strengthen us, God, so that we can walk with you and live for you, Father, in such a way that our faithfulness will produce fruitfulness. I pray that you would bring fruit into the lives of every single person here today, God, as they press into you, in their families, in their relationships, in their marriages, in their workplace, God, in every single area of their life, in their children, God. I pray everything that they put their hands to will be fruitful because they are choosing to be diligent with what you have given them. 
God, we know that when we do our very best, you take care of the rest. Let that be the word for us today, God, that faithfulness will produce fruitfulness. We give you access to our life. Come in and be Lord and be Savior over everything that's going on in our world today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Just for one more moment, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to take a quick moment and give every single person here the opportunity to step into a relationship with Jesus. You might be here today and you've never said yes to Jesus and invited him into your life. I want to tell you that the greatest fulfillment that you could ever find in life comes through a relationship with God. But it all starts with salvation. It all starts by asking him to come in, to wipe away the sins of your past, that thing which has separated you and me from God, our sin. Scripture tells us that Jesus went to a cross. Jesus, who lived a sinless life, went to the cross and took our place, dying the death that we deserve for our sins. And that three days later, God raised him from the dead, conquering death and hell and the grave for all of eternity so that you and I would not have to face it. If you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus, I want to tell you that he is waiting for you to come and say yes to him so that he can wipe your slate clean and give you a hope and a future like you've never known before. All you have to do is wrap your heart around a simple prayer and confess it with your mouth. Invite him in. Believe that he's your savior. And make him the Lord of your life. It'll be the beginning of a beautiful relationship and a journey that will lead you into eternity with God forever and ever. If you want to do that today, we're going to pray this prayer, and I want to invite you to pray it right out loud with me. Even if you want to recommit your life to Jesus today, please wrap your heart around these words. Let's say them right out loud and mean it with everything we have. Say, Dear Jesus, today I thank you for dying for me. I believe that you are my Savior, and I want you to become the Lord of my life. So today I choose you. I will walk with you. I will follow you. I will learn your ways. I want everything you have for me in this life and the life that is to come. I honor you today and give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just put our hands together and welcome to people in the family of God?